Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Stephen Shapiro about finding the hidden solutions to drive innovation. Stephen Shapiro, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited to have a chance to talk. You have such an interesting background, and I'll, I'll share your bio with listeners in just a moment. Um, today, we're going to be focusing on finding the hidden solutions to drive innovation within organizations. And I know you do a lot around innovation. You do a lot um, of work with problem solving and asking the right types of questions. Uh, to brainstorm and come up with better solutions to those really complex, perplexing problems and challenges that face organizations. Um, and of course, today we'll we'll focus on that within the lens or from the lens of you know working with people uh, and driving innovation within organizations. As we get started, I just wanted to share Stephen's bio with everybody. Stephen Shapiro started his innovation work over 20 years ago while leading a 20,000-person innovation practice at the consulting firm Accenture. Uh, since then, he has written six books on innovation, including Best Practices Are Stupid, which was named the Best Innovation and Creativity Book of 2011 by 800 CEO Reed, now Porchlight, and was an international number one business bestseller. His latest book, Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems, was released uh, March 2020. His personality poker card uh, game has been used in 35 countries to create high-performing innovation teams. And Stephen has presented at conferences in over 50 countries. And in 2015, he was in inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. His clients include Marriott, uh, 3M, Delta Airlines, P&G, Nike, Capital One, Honda, Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, and NASA among many others. His work has been featured in Newsweek, Entrepreneur Magazine, Success Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, CNBC, uh, US, uh, USA Network, TLC, and ABC News. Um, such an awesome uh, background, um, such a tremendous impact that you have, Stephen, uh, in the world of work and in the world of organizations and helping uh, people to be competitive and successful. So I'm, I'm honored to have the chance to talk with you today. Um, before we really launch into the discussion, anything um, else you would like to share with the listeners by way of background, uh, personal context? Well, I think that was a pretty thorough uh, background uh, on me, but I'll add just one little piece to it because a lot of people, when they hear the word innovation, they think of people sort of sitting on high mountains, you know, in long white robes, handing down the gospel for the future. And the reality is I'm an engineer. I went to school 
for industrial engineering. Uh, my favorite classes were always like math and physics and stuff of that nature. So I'm actually an engineer at heart. And so although we're going to have a conversation around people, which to me is the key to the success of any organization, uh, sometimes the best way to get people to be most effective is through process. And that's where my background really excels is in a process mindset for driving high performance in people. Yeah, yeah. Processes and systems ultimately influence culture, and that's what's going to shape um, mindset and knowledge sharing uh, and innovation and creativity, right? Um, and so organizations definitely have to pay close attention to the policies, practices, procedures, the systems, the mechanisms that are in place. Those systemic mechanisms are so key in how they influence individuals. So while the, it's the individual and um, the collective um, human capital, the, the, the collective genius of individuals within an organization that drive innovation, it's also the processes, it's the systems that enable that to happen or that can derail innovation. And that's Absolutely. what we see. That's what we see in organizations all the time is the best well-intended uh, leaders kind of shooting themselves in the foot and derailing the possibility of innovating just because of the way they've set up the systems, the processes. Yeah. I, I, processes can be a great help. They can also be a great hindrance to success in an organization. And that's where I really focused on is as an engineer, I'm always trying to reverse engineer what's the best process with the least amount of structure that gives the greatest results. I'm also a jazz sax player. Uh, and so I always think about things in terms of the jazz metaphor rather than the symphonic metaphor, which is highly prescriptive. What I love about jazz is there's still a process to it. There's still a structure, but it's much more improvisational. And that's the question is how do we give people as much improvisational room in the work that they do while still having a coordinating structure? Yeah, coordinating structure and scaffolding, right? Because we do, we do need to um, support our people to have success. And we, if we just completely throw them to the wind, some people will be successful in that kind of an environment with complete autonomy. But most people need some semblance of uh, some, you know, some sort of processes, some sort of structure um, to allow them to be grounded. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's that fine tuning, that, that, uh, that combination I love the jazz metaphor. Um, I, uh, in, in another life, I was involved in vocal jazz um, in the Pacific Northwest, which has a really rich vocal jazz uh, history. And you're absolutely right that when you're, um, when you're improving, uh, improvising, doing scatting or, or things like that, like there's, there's structure to it, but it's, it's improvised structure, right? Uh, and it's built upon what has come before. So within jazz, you're constantly referring back to the greats um, and previous artists and their interpretation and, and throwing in little pieces and tidbits that give homage to those individuals. And, uh, and, I, and I see it the same in organizations. Like we provide the structure, we provide processes, um, but we give people plenty of autonomy to improvise within that structure, but an, enough um, scaffolding that they feel supported, they feel like they have the resources they need, and that ultimately um, they feel empowered to do their best work. Yeah, if we, if we bring all this back to the, the topic of problem solving and innovation. So one of the things which, uh, building on what you were saying before, which is we need some kind of structure. If we give somebody a blank sheet of paper and say, hey, come up with some ideas, we know that the ideas that people come up with aren't really new or valuable. I mean, valuable is probably more important than new, uh, they're, but they're the ones that we've thought about in the past. 
so we have always used this expression, think outside the box. But the problem is when you tell people to think outside the box, you're, in, you're increasing abstraction. You're increasing uh, the, the, the brain's ability to develop solutions. And therefore, it generates a lot of solutions. Most of them are irrelevant. So I always say, don't think outside the box. Find a better box. Uh, what we don't want to do is give people too much rope. But what we want to do is make sure that when they're innovating, when they're problem solving, that they're actually framing the problem the right way, because that structure becomes the key to driving high performing innovation inside of an organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think of, of when, it, when it comes to innovation, you know, our best efforts are still going to fail more often than not, right? And so it's about failing fast, leaning forward into um, the learning that happens through the creativity and the innovative process. Um, and, you know, you may only have one out of 10 um, types of approaches that end up sticking, that end up working, that end up being viable, but you can learn from all the other ones that fail. And as long as you fail fast and, um, and you fail forward, uh, then that becomes a stepping stone to build upon um, and you build on those learnings to then drive the next innovation. Uh, and so those failures don't even really need to be viewed as failures. They're just learnings that then help us to improve the next time, as long as we're failing fast. If, if, if we're complete, it, you, you know, you just mentioned the uh, giving them enough rope, you know, if, if we, if we give them enough rope to hang themselves with um, and they, you know, they're that, that, and to me, that means they're not failing fast. They're, they're not um, piloting, um, with the intention of scaling once they have proof of concept. And instead, um, they're, they're really going to shoot themselves in the foot and the organizations in the foot. Um, but but if, if we just recognize that, yeah, sometimes things are, are gonna work out, sometimes they're not, um, and we just learn from everything we're doing and move forward in a productive, um, constructive way, then we'll be in good shape. Well, you know, and it's interesting. I, I'd never like the word failure because if we are failing, I think we're doing something wrong. So I, I'm actually, my belief is we've been over glorifying failure. If we're not breaking eggs, we're not innovating. And I, look, is failure going to happen? Sure, it's inevitable, but that shouldn't be our goal. So I always recommend that my clients really use the lens of experimentation rather than failure. Because yeah, if, you like conducted, if you conduct an experiment and you disprove your hypothesis, that is you say, we thought this was a good idea, but the evidence tells us it's not. That is a successful experiment. It is not a failure. That's right. Where failure occurs is when we run an experiment, it tells us it's a good idea when it's not a good idea, and then we move forward. So I really try to, uh, and I use, have a number of processes that we use with clients to make sure that they're not failing, but that they're experimenting and they're reducing the risk. Because that to me is the name of the game is reducing risk uh, and gaining some speed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I like that framing. Um, it's interesting. I, I, would, I, would, I would love to hear your take on it. How, how do people respond when you, when you frame it that way as experimentation? Um, do people have a, a good reaction to that? Or, you know, I, I could imagine some people having like initial walls going up because the, the whole idea of experimentation, you know, to them means all this like sciencey um, stuff that maybe they're not comfortable with, but, but it doesn't need to be scary, but experimentation is exactly what you just mentioned. It's, it's, it's simply testing and learning and growing and, and moving forward. And that, that should happen in every type of work that we do. 
Yeah, I've never really found much pushback on it. I mean, once it's explained, I mean, I'm not talking about that you're going to go sit in a laboratory for 20 years trying to invent a new drug. Uh, but the whole mindset of scientific discovery is something which is easy enough to grasp when it's laid out in a very simple process. Again, it comes back to simple processes. And so I find that that's, a, you know, people really like it. And especially when I tell them that the biggest barrier to, or the, the biggest creator of failure, you know, we always say that it's, yeah, but is the thing which kills innovation. And I've actually found exactly the opposite to be true. Our issue is not that we're killing innovation. The problem is we're not killing enough innovation. We're not killing the bad innovation. So the biggest barrier is something which I call the, wow, this is a great idea, which basically means once you believe something is a great idea, something called confirmation bias kicks in, which then all of a sudden now, no matter what we do, no matter what type of experiments we run, even if it tells us it's a terrible idea, our brain's going to filter out all the evidence that says it's bad and it's only going to focus on what is good. And there's so much, re so many reasons for this. And so what ends up happening is we implement things that we shouldn't be implementing. And so once we start understanding the brain's role in this and when we understand how processes can help shift it, clients always embrace it because they don't have time to fail. They don't have time to learn. I mean, if, if we said that one out of 10, uh, you know, innovations were going to fail, but it's a great learning. Well, that means that 90% of our time was spent learning, but only 10% of our time was spent implementing. So how do we shift that to get whatever the right numbers, 70%, 80% success rate by eliminating and killing the innovations we should faster in the process? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Um, and confirmation bias is such a dangerous thing and, and it is human nature and it is the way our minds tend to work and no one's immune from it uh, unless we can learn to recognize it and we can learn to push back and to, to have a, a, a questioning mind, um, not take things for granted. Um, and so whether that's talking about innovation as we're doing right now, I mean, it applies to, so, to every aspect of life, I think. And I, I see so many times I, I see it come back to confirmation bias and I, and I, it's never effective for me to like go up and shake somebody and say, stop, you know, having confirmation bias, but that's what I want to do, you know, sometimes uh, because I, I just see someone or, or a group of people or an organization doing things that's not in their best interest, but they just can't see it because, because of confirmation bias. Uh, so that's absolutely, absolutely something that we definitely need to be uh, careful with. So I know you talk a lot about hidden solutions, finding those hidden solutions, um, to really complex problems so that you can solve the problem faster. What do you mean by, you know, finding those hidden solutions and what are some tools and uh, tricks to, to be able to do that? Sure. So I think the, the biggest challenge we have is as human beings, we're not wired for innovation. We're actually wired for survival. And so what ends up happening is that we create neural pathways. Uh, basically, these are grooves or pads in the brain to things that we've thought about for a long time or things we think about on a regular basis. Uh, and in some cases, things that we thought about recently. And so what ends up happening is when we're trying to find solutions, we tap into our past rather than what's possible. Uh, so when we are doing problem solving, a lot of times we're asking the wrong question because of our past experiences. And so to me, the best path to finding great solutions is to stop looking for solutions. The best path to finding better solutions is to step back and make sure we're asking the right question. So I said earlier, don't think outside the box, find a better box. Well, that better box is the reframed problem. How can we change you know, the, the question so that instead of focusing on revenues, which might be too broad, it maybe it's about margins. Instead of getting more 
uh, profitable customers? How do we get fewer more profitable customers? Each of these changes in the question will give us different possible solutions. And we don't take enough time to actually think about the questions we're asking. We're running around chasing solutions. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. So, so how do we disrupt the type, the frame, the current framing that we have? Because I mean, there, it, you can only do, and you can only move forward based on the experiences that you've had and, and your, your framing. I mean, you, you can recognize that your framing is limited and you can try to challenge your understanding and you can try to question and you can try to do those things. I think that's important, but any, any other thoughts or ideas on how we can actively disrupt our, our current framing to, to kind of push ourselves into asking different types of questions? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to just acknowledge that most likely we're asking the wrong question. And the reason for that is we're making a lot of assumptions. So that's sort of the philosophical perspective. From a tool perspective, uh, my latest book actually has 25 different lenses that are designed to help you reframe a problem. So for example, uh, and there's five different categories. So there's lenses around reducing abstraction. So if the problem you're trying to solve is like solving world hunger, There's five different lenses to break it down into something smaller. So, for example, uh, if you're trying to increase revenues, just choosing a simple one, the reduce abstraction lens, which is the first one, uh, the leverage lens, which is the first one inside of reduce abstraction. So the leverage lens says, what is the one factor that will have the greatest impact? If you'd only solve for one part of this problem, what would it be? So instead of trying to increase all revenues, you might ask yourself, who are our most profitable customers or what are our most profitable customer segments or where are we uh, least profitable because we're spending way too much time. So what you might find is you have a lot of customers that require a lot of handholding and therefore, even though they might be generating a lot of revenue, they're actually sucking your margins. And so these 25 different lenses become sort of a mental kaleidoscope that allow you to shift and twist and change whatever question you're working on and come up with, a bunch of different reframes, each of them, which will give you different possible solutions. And then typically what happens is you see when you say, Oh, that's the one, this is going to drive the best results and you move forward with it. I really like that. And it's, it's useful to have different 
models, different framings um, kind of right there in front of you so you can force yourself to think along those lines. Um, I don't know what you think, but something that I've found helpful is just proactively putting myself in different situations to interact with different types of people, with different types of uh, worldviews and framings, perhaps people from different backgrounds, different disciplines, different industries, um, because it's, it's in, in that environment where all of a sudden I'm kind of forced to have my understanding and my ideas um, bounce off of and, and interact with people that are from completely different backgrounds than me. Um, that, that usually for me has been the way that I've come up with some of the most creative types of approaches that I've ever done. And so I try to foster interdisciplinary teams. Um, I try to have conversations like this, you know, it's, it's one of the nice perks of, of having a podcast where I, you know, talk to hundreds of uh, thought leaders and industry experts because it, you know, it just fundamentally forces me to interact with people that probably I wouldn't have otherwise. And then I learn from it and I, I get all these new insights um, just as things start to bounce off of what's already in my head. Um, so for me, that's like one of the keys is, is just like put yourself out there, get yourself into a situation where you're out of your comfort zone, where you're interacting with different people, with different backgrounds, different ways of understanding, different ways of, of, of viewing the same type of problem because they're coming at it from a different angle with a different set of questions. And, and at that point, you, you know, you can start to reframe, um, I, you know, it, it always, it frustrates me, but I'm also appreciative of it. I, I, you know, I get to the point where I've been wrestling with this problem and, you know, again, based on my past experience and my expertise, I'm like, okay, these are the types of things I need to try to do. And then I'm like, it's not until I'm out walking my dogs around the park and I notice something that then triggers something in my head. It's something totally disconnected, but like I see something happen in, you know, in the tree and it triggers something in my head. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I'm looking at this all wrong. And what if I think of it this way? And now, oh, and then, then it just lays out in front of me like these five things I should do right away. And sure enough, it ends up being successful. So, I mean, it's, it's, it, sometimes these, these flashes of inspiration, you know, are just a byproduct of us putting ourselves out there into situations where we can have um, those little trigger moments to help us view things from a different lens. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, what you're describing is one of the 25 lenses, which is the analogy lens. So that's under the increase abstraction, because what in a lot of cases happens is we assume that the problem that we're trying to solve is going to be solved in the domain in which it's framed. So if I'm trying to solve uh, an industry specific problem, I'm going to look to that industry or if it's a functional problem. But one of the things that we know is if you ask the question, who else, who else has solved a similar problem in a different area, you get some really cool uh, solutions. So, for example, the gas pipeline industry has problems with cracks, breaks, and leaks in their gas pipelines. Well, they spend a ton of money with experts trying to seal cracks, but then when they realize, when they ask the question, who else solves a similar problem? Well, the human body solves that problem. You get a paper cut, you don't have to go to the doctor, you don't need stitches, it seals itself. And by studying the human body, they were able to build an inert coagulant ingredient that goes inside of gas pipelines. And there's literally thousands and thousands of great examples of how solutions were found outside of the area of expertise, because expertise is often the enemy of innovation. And so that's one of the other 25 lenses is the analogy lens. So that's great. Yeah, well, and, and it's, you know, I, I'm sure you can appreciate this as an engineer, 
like you do need expertise, right? You need people with, with um, very deep expertise in particular areas to be able to operationalize, right? And to be able to prototype and to be able to, to you know, carry out things successfully. So you, you do need that expertise. But if you only have a group of experts, you know, like the, the pipeline example that you just said, I'm sure that the big oil companies are spending tons of money bringing in scientists and, and consultants and experts. Um, and, and, but they're not coming up with the solutions because they, they're all like deep expertise in like this one narrow area. And it's not until they start to get outside of that, that area um, that they can find a solution that's going to be workable. And, and so it's like, we have to find a way to have, to foster both deep expertise, but kind of cross pollinate, you know, across interdisciplinarity and, and cross disciplinarity um, is so important, I think, to get outside of the box, to find that new box. I can't, like, it's, it's impossible for me to even conceive of what might be a different box, unless I have some breadth to my uh, understanding of how different areas connect right or, or at least I, I surround myself with people who come from different areas of expertise and then we have open dialogue so that we can explore and find those different boxes you know to then you know ask the different questions um so i don't know what do you think about like expertise versus you know breadth versus depth of of expertise uh, as we try to tackle solutions tackle well, problems look, to come up with solutions. We, we need both. I mean, expertise is only a problem if you don't recognize its limitations. So, because we're not looking to adopt solutions from other industries, we're looking to adapt solutions from other industries. And if you don't have the expertise, then you don't have the context. But you also need to recognize that most people, so Steve Jobs once said, creativity is just having enough dots to connect. And the problem is most people have one dot. They know their area of expertise and they put on blinders and they don't look elsewhere. There's nothing wrong with the expertise as long as you're open to collecting new dots, to making those connections. And once you start making those connections, then you start to see patterns and insights and opportunities that were previously hidden that now will start to come to view. So we need the expertise to be able to understand the context, but we need to make sure we're not limited by the expertise. And most people don't explicitly take the time to go beyond their frame of reference. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard in, in a highly competitive, you know, world of business where leaders, you know, are just so often, you know, they're so burdened. They're, they're dealing with so many things. They're putting out fires constantly. They're, they're, they're putting in lots of hours. They're trying. Um, but I see this all the time when I work with leaders that, that they're they're so focused on the urgent that they're not giving themselves the time to connect those dots to think the big strategic um, types of uh, questions and and the big innovative types of questions and so you know part of it is just giving yourself a break like kind of in perhaps forcing yourself to take a break uh, from the daily grind of everything that needs to happen so that you can have those quieter moments um, where you have the opportunity to make those connections, whether it's literal um, networking types of connections with other people who have different areas of expertise to help you connect the dots, or just quieting your mind and taking 30 minutes, you know, every now and then just to, to carefully uh, contemplate, you know, and, and consider the issues and try to force yourself to go through that mental exercise of considering different possible framings. Um, but if you're so busy all the time do, addressing all these, what we think are urgent um, crises, 
um, then we're never going to give ourselves a chance to to be able to uh, to to create and and innovate um, because we're not allowing ourselves to to think and ponder and consider. Yeah, and and one of the other lenses uh, is the observation lens, and this is a little different than the other lenses, but I think it's a really powerful one because if you're solving the wrong problem you'll never find the right opportunities. And the observation lens just basically says, how can we be hyper aware to what's around us? And in particular, how can we observe our customers, our clients? How can we observe the way that they interact with our products, our competitors' products? Uh, and how can we just observe the, the larger ecosystem and just taking that time, actually acting like an anthropologist, putting on the fedora and making sure you're like Indiana Jones and getting out there and observing Getting out from behind the desk, that sometimes is the key to being able to uncover uh, hidden needs uh, that people have that they might have missed otherwise. So the, there's 25 different lenses. We touched on three of 25 today, uh, but that's basically, you know, what everything we're talking about is how do we shift our perspective to find a new angle to look at a problem from a, a different lens? Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Stephen, it has been a real pleasure talking with you today. Um, I, I wish we could continue, but our time's drawing short, um, and perhaps we can continue this discussion another time. But before we part ways today, I wanted to give you the last word and give you a chance um, to share with the listeners how they can get connected with you and find out more about what you're doing. Sure. So I, I guess I'll close with a quote that's attributed to Einstein. He never actually said these exact words, but I love the essence of the quote, which is, if I had an hour to save the world... I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. That's 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. And from my experience, most organizations and most teams and most individuals are running around spending 60 minutes solving problems that are either the wrong problem or they're not well-framed. And so instead of focusing on the solution, let's focus on the question. And it's paradoxical that the more we stop focusing on the solution, the more likely we are to find better solutions. So the best way to, to get in touch with me and learn more about the Invisible Solutions book is to go to invisiblesolutionsbook.com. There you can learn about the book, but there's also a whole bunch of free downloads, such as the 25 lenses. You can download those and use them and apply them to your problems. And here's the thing I know is there's not a business problem that I've not been able to solve by using these lenses. And in many cases, we solve them in 15 minutes. So I know it's a bold statement, uh, it doesn't mean the solutions were always the best solution, but at least it moved us forward in a way that we had new insights that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you, Stephen. It has been a pleasure. I hope my listeners will reach out, get connected on LinkedIn, go check out the website, check out the book. Uh, hopefully this has been a, a useful discussion for everyone who's tuned in. Um, I hope everyone can find ways to, to drive greater innovation within their organizations. And that's as always, I hope everyone stays healthy and safe. I hope everyone can continue to find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, and that everyone has a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.